Well, good morning again. So, this summer, been doing some fun things, I hope. Seeing things green up around here is, is a good thing. Let's pray for more of that. So, one of my favorite things to do in summer is just those evenings, and I hope you've had some of them already, where you get to sit with family or some friends around the campfire, and you just chill, relax, and have all kinds of interesting conversations. Those are some pretty fun nights, right? Now, there's usually someone in the group, though, that likes to ask the uh, group participation type questions. You know the person I'm thinking of, right? And so, that, you know, it'll be questions like, um, oh, they'll do something like, if you could only have one sense, which sense would you pick, you know? Or things like that. Or another common one that's, that's a lot of fun is, what would you do if you won the lottery, you know? And then everyone gets to dream about where they would travel or what they would buy or the house they would build or the real benevolent types would be all about how they would divide it up with their family or you know who they would give it to and which charities or ministries they would support and there's always those good people that would do that but most of us just have fun dreaming about the silly or grandiose things we'd want to do right anyway as I as I was thinking about that um, in our in our message today Jesus is uh about to pray a very famous and important prayer. But as he's about to pray that, it it didn't hit me really until this time around studying this text, but he's very aware that his time is soon over. He has a few days to live, and this is time, he's taking time now to pray. So as I thought about that, I thought, you know, this question doesn't usually get asked around the fire because it maybe sounds a little bit morbid. But, you know, the question that we often will discuss, especially with closer friends, is, you know, if you only had a short time to live, what would you do? And, you know, like, just like the uh, lottery one, some of us would be, we would think about all the wild and crazy things that we never got to do, and we'd think about doing that. And then the benevolent types, again, would go on about maybe all the people they'd need to make things right with, or the things that, you know, so you kind of get the idea. Now, now, before I go on, um, I, I have to say this. Um, now, since I've been here at Bridgeway, I've been able to meet a lot of you, and I've had much admiration and been blessed by so many of you. But I have to fully admit that I have a new hero, and that new hero is seated in the middle here, and is, he's your former pastor, Bob. <laughs> Bob, you didn't know. <laughs> now, my hero up till now has been Eugene Peterson, but Bob, you've taken his place. He's in glory now, so the Lord said you need a new hero. But no, I don't mean, I don't, what I'm going to say is very serious, even though I'm being lighthearted. Bob, I just so much respect. Uh, Bob has been diagnosed with cancer and has been living with that very question for some time now. How would you live your life if you knew you had limited time? And you know, Bob, I just want to say to you, I have so respected the choices you've made in living your life. You know, Bob continues to do everything he used to do in terms of ministry, serving in the care homes around Swift Current and serving as an elder in our church and blessing so many people. He's, he's living for me what I've always wanted to live in this sense. You know that tension in scripture of Jesus could return at any time? So if we take that seriously, how should we live? Right? Like, should we sell everything and just like all just do full-time, full-time reaching people for Jesus? Because Jesus could return tomorrow. But Jesus may not also return for past my lifetime. So how do you live in that tension of, I've got to live 
like I'm going to live my whole life and yet live with that sense of urgency that Jesus could come back at any time. And Bob, you've just modeled that so well for me and the choices you've made and how you live your life. And I want to honor you and also encourage all of us with, with, with that idea of, of living our life intentionally and, and serving in, in that way. Well, anyway, back to Jesus in John 17. So those of you who are guests today, we're, you're joining us in the middle of a series in John. And today we happen to be in John 17 where Jesus prays his famous prayer. So this morning, I'm going to cover uh, the first 19 verses, and then the final part will be next week, and that's, that's where Jesus prays, prays his famous prayer for unity, and so we're, we're going we're gonna to hit that next week. But anyway, back to the scene of Jesus coming to pray and realize, realizing his hour has come, these are his last few days on earth, what did Jesus pray about? And it's made me think all week about if I was in that situation what would I pray about? Well, let's go to the text. So John chapter 17, starting at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So, what does Jesus pray for in the beginning of his prayer? He prays for glory. He prays to be glorified. Now, that sounds pretty awesome, except that most of us are going, well, what's that really, what's he really praying about? What, what do you mean, praying to be glorified for glory? What's that all about? Well, big picture, glory means recognition or honor for accomplishing or a great feat. So that whole idea of fame, glory, honor, recognition for something great. So that can kind of give you a little bit of a picture, big picture of what glory means. Now, in the Old Testament of the Bible, and also in the New, but mainly in the Old Testament, glory is often referred to just simply as brightness. Every time God shows up, and when God shows up, his presence is glory. And so every time God shows up, it's all about brightness and all about light, blinding light. That's, that's glory. There's a great example of that in Exodus 33 with Moses. And Moses goes up to the top of a mountain where he meets with God, and there's brightness and all that. And then when Moses comes down, the scripture says that his face literally glowed. In fact, after that, when Moses would go into the tent they had that they traveled with, into the Holy of Holies in there to meet with God, when he would come out, his face would glow again. He'd sometimes have to wear a veil to cover his face because it would glow. Now, isn't that amazing? Can you imagine what it would be like if spending time with Jesus meant that we glowed? Well, I, I can't say I've ever seen someone physically glow. But, you know, I have many times experienced people who have had such a fresh touch of the Spirit or have such an intimate walk with Jesus that their life transforms in such a radical way that their countenance changes. 
You ever notice that? It's just so exciting. Like, like someone who you've kind of known as being, you know, there may be, you may, you maybe see the stress or worry in them or you see the anger in them and that's kind of their countenance. And then Jesus transforms their life and then there's just like this, there's this peace and this joy and their face even changes. So I don't know if I'm pushing that too far, but I, I think that's maybe the glory. The glory of God's presence coming out, the fruit of the spirit, the life of Christ coming out in us. Wow, wouldn't that be amazing for that to happen in our life? So anyway, that picture of brightness is glory. So ultimately, what does glory mean? Biblically, it's the revelation of God's honor, presence, power, and character. So, why does Jesus want to be glorified? Why does Jesus start his prayer by saying, Father, glorify me. I want to be glorified so that I can glorify you. Is Jesus asking for that because Jesus wants fame? Because Jesus wants reputation? Because Jesus wants to leave a legacy? Well, it doesn't really fit with his character, does it? No. Is Jesus wanting to be glorified because he's been in a human body for 33 years and he's going, this sucks, humanity. I want to go back to being God and be in heaven again with the Father. Uh, Perhaps that was there. Being glorified and being in God's presence again would be awesome, I'm sure. However, the scripture seems to clearly state that Jesus prayed to be glorified because he wanted to bring glory to the Father. He wanted to reveal the true Father and reveal who he was in the Father to his disciples and to the whole world. You see, Jesus wanted to bring victory to his disciples and to all humanity. You see, Jesus, according to verse 3, look at verse 3 again. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus wanted to be glorified so that he could bring his greatest gift, salvation and eternal life for all who would believe in him. He knew that in his next few days he was going to die and then be miraculously risen from the dead and that victory was going to bring eternal life. And that's why he was praying to be glorified because that would be the ultimate glory to give that gift to his creation, salvation, eternal life, God's heart for all of us. Consider this quote from a commentator named Talbert. He says, Glory is already present in God. If God grants glory to someone, he grants that person to participate in his honor or power or divine radiance. Do you want to pray for glory? All right. Now, next, next part of the text. Let's go down now to verse 6. Jesus prays, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew a certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I prayed for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Now, you're probably wondering, why have you got a report card up there? (laughs) All of you kids that just finished school are going, why are you traumatizing me again with this report card? We just went through that. It's summer. Well, anyway, the reason I got a report card up there is that this text makes me think of a 
report card. To me, it's a very surprising report card. Now, notice Jesus is praying for his disciples. Did you notice all the things he said about them? He said, they've obeyed and accepted your word. He says, they know, they know that everything you've given me comes from you. And then the best one, Jesus says, and they believed with certainty. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've actually been following this series or reading before John 17, what's been going on with Jesus' disciples? Remember, like, these disciples were struggling with unbelief. They were constantly struggling with doubt. They were fighting with each other. They never really got what Jesus' mission was. Jesus knows all that. Jesus also knows that they're all going to desert him within the next day or two. Peter's going to deny him three times. He knows all that. And yet, here he is praying to his father, and this is like a glowing report card. He's saying, these disciples you gave me, they're like a gift. You're glorifying me through them. What? They believe with certainty that you are God and that I'm the one you sent. I don't know if it doesn't seem to strike you as odd. It strikes me as odd. But here's what I love about this. You know, I, I suppose the disciples could have very easily felt like, oh man, we are such a disappointment to Jesus. We are so fallible and we make mistakes all the time and we're sinners and man, Jesus must just shake his head all the time when he thinks about us. And yet what does Jesus do when he prays to his father? It's not like the father doesn't know. And yet what is he praying about? He's praying about all the wonderful things he loves about them and all the things he's hoping for them. That's how Jesus saw his disciples. So let me ask you this. How do you think Jesus thinks of you? How do you think Jesus prays to the Father about you? You know, you're, you're going to hear me say this over and over again because it's kind of, I guess, one of the things I say because I'm so passionate about this. But I believe that so many Christians constantly live with God's disappointed in me. And can I just say that that is such a lie and is so not the truth of Scripture? And can we break that in Jesus' name? Can you open up your heart and mind to the truth of God's word that Jesus loves you, that Jesus believes in you, that Jesus is for you, Jesus is not up in heaven shaking his head and being disappointed in you? Does he know you're a sinner? Does he know you're a deeply flawed human? Of course he does. But he loves you and he's for you. Embrace that. You're Jesus for you, praying for you. In fact, yeah, in the end of verse 10 when he says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. Do you believe that glory comes to Jesus through you? If you're a follower of Jesus, even through some of the hardest things in life and some of the deepest seasons of falling away or despair or whatever, if you keep following, you bring glory to him. He loves you. He's for you. Know that. All right, now, to the rest of the scripture where we get to the praying for protection part. So starting at verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe, 
by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be sanctified. So in these verses, Jesus prays over his disciples, and I would suggest also, in a sense, praying for all of us. And what he's praying over them is for protection. So, protection from what? Now, in verse 11 and 12, he says, I want you to protect them, Father, so that they may be one, just as we are one. You see, Jesus so knew the humanity of his disciples, watching them fight and argue and about who is the best and all the humanity and flawedness, everything about them, Jesus knew that they needed protection. And what they needed protection from was from division. Division comes very naturally to us in our humanity. Jesus knew that when he left, he needed to pray for the Father. He wanted to pray to the Father. Oh Lord, protect them from division. And he says, I want them to be one as we are one. Now the very last part of the prayer Jesus is going to pray all about this miraculous Trinitarian unity and call us as the church to it. And that's next week's sermon. But I just wanted you to show this already and see this here, that Jesus is already realizing the reality of division. And he's saying, Father, Father, protect them. May they be one like we are one. Later in the text, he prays for them to have protection from the world. Now he's going to explain that a little more, but he does say that the world hates them because they're not of the world. God has given them his truth, and sometimes that truth, the truth of the gospel, other scriptures talk about the truth of the gospel as sometimes a stumbling block and sometimes an offense. So yeah, there's going to be hatred over that word, and that's going to be a reality for them in the world. Jesus knew that for him, and so he's praying to the Father. Father, protect them as they live in this world. Now, last week, I think Dave's here. Where did I see him? Elder Dave, uh, the other Elder Dave, Kerwin. Now I can't see you. (laughs) Um, Or is he at camp? Oh, he's hiding up there doing live stream. Okay, there he is. Anyway, he was up here last week doing elder prayer, and Dave gave a very good word about this whole tension of being in the world but not of the world. And it was a very good word. If you didn't hear it, you can look, check it up online and, and hear it again. But as I was thinking about that in, in the context of this passage this week, I came across this quote from an author named Brister. He says this, Christians are in the world in the same way that they occupy the same space, go to the same markets, and interact in the same society. They are not people who form their own subcultures or ghettos to avoid the world. They recognize where God has placed them and do not run from that reality. 
They are relatable, accessible, and approachable to those in the world in normal, ordinary ways. Example, friend, neighbor, coworker, classmate, teammate. Now, for what I remember of David's word, very similar idea. And this is what Jesus is praying for them. Jesus isn't saying, Father, take them from the world, or Father, give them nice little safe communes to live on, or have them make churches that are just safe little sanctuaries that are just for believers and let's separate from the world and not get polluted and be careful and hide and hope that we don't get polluted by this terrible world around us. That wasn't what Jesus was praying. Jesus said, hey, I died for this world. I love this world. I created this world. Yeah, there's lots and lots of darkness in this world. But I've called you to be in the world to bring light to the world, not to avoid the world. Again, he's praying protection over them because there is lots of evil and darkness in the world. And that protection is God praying that over us. And yet as he prays that protection, the calling here, and that comes later, is that we are then sent. We are sent ones into that world to be that light. And so as we consider that, again, what I love about this quote is just the idea of so often we think that being sent ones or going into the world is some kind of like big ministry exploit, right? If I go on a missions trip, if I sign up for a ministry, if I do some great exploit, or if I join something where I'm standing on the street corner with the four spiritual laws, or if I do something like that, then I'm being a sent one. But being in the world, being a sent one in the world simply means that as you live your life, you let the glory shine out. You let the presence of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit so flow out of you that in just your normal dealings of being a student, of being a business person, of the people you meet through the business or job you're in, or the clubs you're a part of, or the sports you participate in, or whatever you do in society, that you just live out Jesus. One of my favorite scriptures says that we're to be prepared to give an answer to those who ask about the hope within us. You see, we are supposed to be the kind of people that live with so much hope, with so much glory, to be the positive people. Why do so many people think that Christians are the negative judgmental types? Can we break that? Can we bring God's glory wherever we go and let the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, like, let that evidence. And you know, when people see hope, then they want to know what's with you, what's with that hope in you. And that's when we get to live out this incredible, wonderful story of Jesus, this saving hope. That's why Jesus was praying for protection. Protection, not again for us to hide and to cluster in our little Christian groups, but for us to be the sent ones, the living ones. So in explaining this more, further down, he he gets clear in verse 15. Jesus says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, all through Scripture, it's very clear that evil is real, that there is a very real spiritual realm that includes good forces and evil forces, and the reality of Satan and demons and a very organized 
um, evil world is, is portrayed in scripture as where the spiritual battle happens that we don't see. So Jesus is very aware of this realm and very aware of this enemy named Satan. And he's asking the Father to protect his followers, to protect his coming church. Now, here's a bit of a tension with all of this. Jesus knows that in a few days, he's going to lay down his life, he's going to die on that cross, and then be raised from the dead. Now, that whole act was basically the biggest defeat to Satan and the enemy. Jesus' death and resurrection was the critical blow to Satan being defeated forever. Good wins, good triumphs over evil, that's the hope of the gospel. So, here's the tension. If Jesus did that, and if Jesus won that decisive battle, and if evil and Satan is defeated, then why is there still a battle? Why does Jesus still need to ask the Father to pray for protection during our life? Now, the best way I've come to understand this is through an illustration that works really well for me because I'm a self-confessed history geek. So for those of you that are not, I apologize if this illustration doesn't work for you, but I'll do my best. But this tension that I'm talking about is very much like what happened in the Second World War. Now, one of the most decisive battles in World War II was called D-Day. And D-Day was the great invasion where the combined Allied forces um, attacked northern France to basically liberate France from being, them being occupied by the Nazis for quite a few years. And that was basically the decisive battle that marked the war is going to be over now. Now, here's what's interesting. Even before that event, everyone, including the Germans, knew who was going to win the war eventually. It was only a matter of time. But that big event was kind of like, this war is going to be over, but not quite yet. In fact, historians tell us that the fiercest fighting and the greatest losses came in those last years of the war. Even though ultimate victory was in sight and they knew it was going to eventually come, there was still a huge battle to get there. That is very much the time we're living in. From the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension until Jesus comes again, we live in this tension. We live in the time when Jesus says, pray for the kingdom to come. Jesus' kingdom is expanding all through the world, every moment, every day, and he is waging war against the enemy. But there's a very real enemy that wants to do anything and everything possible to stop the kingdom and to attack Jesus' bride. Do you remember who Jesus' bride is? That's the church. And you know, are we so often a messed up church with all kinds of problems and historic atrocities and everything else? Oh yeah, oh yeah we are. But this was God's plan to bring the kingdom to the earth. Do you ever wonder why the church is under so much attack? You know, as I've met with many of you um, and, and hear your stories and hear your heart from the church. You know, a lot of you say something like this to me, that you're just so grieved, and you're like, how can we be the church? How can we claim to be Christians when we can't even get along with each other? What's wrong with us? And a lot of you are quite grieved because people that you know or love that used to come here have left because they go, well, hey, if that's what Christians are like. And you know what? 
I know that's true, and I know that that hurts, and I know that that causes a lot of grief. But can I also remind you that the church is in the crosshairs of the enemy? If there's anywhere that the enemy wants to thwart and divide and tear down and destroy, it's God's vehicle for bringing the kingdom, his church. So the fact that we're under great attack is a reality, doesn't justify, but it's a reality. And this is why we need to say, Jesus, Father God, that prayer of protection, that we not be divided, that we be protected from the enemy, let's just be on our knees like that song we just sang before I came up to preach. Let's be on our knees in that battle and join with the power of God in, in this battle that we're in. That's our reality. You see, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. We are on the winning side. Victory is inevitable, but we've got a fierce battle in the meantime. And that's why we need this protection. And let's, let's just uh, end off with the, the last few verses of our text today, 17 to 19. Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Okay, well earlier I asked you if you wanted to be glorified and some of you are going, okay, now that I know what that is, I'm okay with that. How about sanctified? Anyone here want to be sanctified? Well, you're probably all going to say no because that's another one of those words that we're scared of. Sanctified somehow means, I don't know, like does that mean that I'm supposed to be some like holier-than-thou, super-Christian, perfect, sinless. Well, no. (laughs) Sanctified could never mean that because we're dreadfully human. Sanctified simply means to be set apart. When Jesus sanctifies us, he sets us apart for him, for his purposes. You see, like the disciples, Jesus knows how flawed we are. Of course he does. He knows our weaknesses more intimately than we do. He knows our sin more intimately than we do. And yet what does he want to do? He wants to sanctify us. He wants to forgive us. And he wants to fill us. And he wants to sanctify us. I mean, he wants to set us apart for his will and for his purpose so he can send us out to continue his work. And what he asks for us is to be willing is to say, yes, Jesus, in all of my brokenness, in all of my sinful humanity, forgive me, cleanse me, use me, sanctify me, and let me be your son one. So I hope we're signing up to be sanctified because it's not about us and our holiness. Better not be or we're all all in big trouble. It's about his holiness. It's about his amazingness. And he says, I love you and I call you. I want to sanctify you and send you out to be my disciples. So as we conclude this message today, and I come back to the the overall theme of protection and prayer, I'd like to pray over you and pray over us as a church body in the area of protection. Protection from division, protection from the world, and specifically from the enemy. Now I'd like to pray that over our church as a whole and have you agree with me 
I think there's power in us agreeing together and asking the Father for that protection, especially now as we walk through this transition season. But also would like to pray that over some of you as individuals. Some of you right now in your life may be going through a real tough time of temptation. You might be going through a real tough time of doubt and just wondering where you are with God. There may be some tragic things in your life or in your family that just have you in a place where you're going, oh, I need God's protection. I desperately need God's protection. I'd like to offer that hope and that prayer over all of you today as well. So if I could just ask you all to just close your eyes. And if you're someone today that's saying, I, would, I need and I would love this prayer for protection today, just invite you to, to hold out your hands like I am, just in a way that it's like you're receiving a gift. And I'll just indicate your desire of your heart to be prayed for for protection. So let's pray. So Father God, we come before you as Jesus came before you and prayed. And Lord, we just acknowledge you to be the almighty, awesome, wonderful God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for how you rose from the dead and you defeated the enemy. Thank you that there is victory in you, Jesus. And so, Father, as Jesus prayed to you for protection, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I want to pray to you for protection over your dear ones here that have lifted their hearts or their hands to you and are saying that there's something in my life and I need your protection. So I just pray for each of you right now in the name of Jesus that the protection of God Almighty would be over you and in you and through you. And Father, I also want to pray for Bridgeway Community Church. Lord, you know this congregation has been through a very difficult season. And yet, Lord Jesus, we claim your promise that you said that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail. And so, Father, I'm asking you to protect us from the evil one. And we are asking together, in the name of Jesus, in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray against the enemy. We pray against the strategies and the tactics and the division that the enemy brings. And we say no in the name of Jesus. And we pray freedom and victory in the name of Jesus. We pray that hope would be restored in this congregation and that vision and passion for what you want to do, God, through this congregation would be restored in miraculous ways. And oh God, we know that only you can do that. So Holy Spirit, come in power. Soften our hearts. Light us on fire. Oh, sanctify us. Set us apart. Send us out. We pray all these things in that name, the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask our, our servers to come and also the worship team. And we're going to respond. And coming to the table together. So to prepare our, our hearts for coming to the table, I just want to kind of walk you through uh, um, a few slides that you'll see behind you that will have us both pray um, 
confess and then uh, be able to come to the table together. Um, I've designed these to be a light print that I'll read and then a bold print that I'll ask all of you to read. And uh, worship and pray with me and together as we come to the Lord's table. So I got to turn. Come to the Lord's table, all you who love him. Come to the Lord's table, confess your sin. Come to the Lord's table, be at peace. And now please, please read the bold. It's our confession. We have not believed you or trusted in your power. Lord, help our unbelief. We have stained our souls by our action and inaction. Cleanse us, Lord. We are a broken people, bruised by our sin and the sins of others, weakened and unable to repair ourselves. Heal us, Lord. When we confess our sinful ways, God abundantly pardons. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are all forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. On the night of your betrayal, Lord Jesus, you took bread and you blessed it. You broke it and you gave it to your disciples and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You did the same with the cup after the supper saying, this cup that is poured out is the new covenant in my blood. And now please respond. Jesus, in remembrance of all you have done to save us, we offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving. Christ has come among us. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ abides with us. Christ will come again. So by the peace of Christ and the invitation of our Lord Jesus to do this in remembrance of me, I want to invite you to come to the table today. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're invited to come to this table today. Um, the bread is gluten-free, um, so the servers will serve you with tongs, but we are going to ask you to come forward. If you are unable to come forward for any, any personal or reasons, I will have the tray, and I, I would love to come and serve you where you're seated. So I'm going to pray, and then as the music begins, you can come to either station here. Come to the table. Be at peace. Receive the Lord's forgiveness and blessing, and come to the victory, which is the bread of life and the cup of salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen.